Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's Word together. Top of the morning to you, Dale. Glad to have you with us and the rest of you as we continue to work our way through this letter of Hebrews. So if you've been following me anytime at all, you know that I am continually harping on things like don't let systematic theology drive your exegesis and your interpretation and context, 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 context is king. Well, today we're going to see a prime example of the dangerous territory you can get into if you don't let context be king. So we're in chapter 10 of Hebrews and verse 26 says, for if we go on sinning willfully, After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now suppose suppose that was a verse that popped up in your daily devotional book or app. Now, this is probably not a verse that's going to pop up there because at least in my experience, most of those uh, devotional books only pick the the nice ones, the positive ones, the feel-good ones, right? But it's your Bible reading plan or whatever. Or let's say a teacher, a pastor-teacher gets up and he's the type of pastor-teacher that reads a verse and then preaches his whole sermon on that verse without giving careful consideration to the role that verse plays in context. Imagine what you could come away with from this verse. If we go on sinning willfully, let's just stop right there. Have you sinned willfully today, yesterday, in the last week? Have you done it more than once? Have you known the right thing to do and said, nah, I'm not going to do that right now? Or the opposite. I know I shouldn't think this. I shouldn't say this. This would be unkind. I should not lose my temper. I should not be impatient. I should not look again at that woman or that man. I shouldn't say this because I'm speaking out of arrogance, whatever it is. Have you ever done that, thought that, and then you did it anyway? You willfully pursued that thing that you knew full well the Lord would be displeased with? Have you ever done that? Have you done it more than once? Lon says multiple times per day. All right, so if I were just going to grab this verse, would there be any hope for Lon or for the rest of us who admit that we certainly have done this? If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, you are told, Don't be arrogant, right? Don't be prideful. Or let's flip the other way. You've been told to be compassionate. (laughs) Luke Nevermore says, never. Oops, just did it. (laughs) You're told to be compassionate and kind and humble. So you know that is what the Lord requires of you. But then you don't act with compassion. You know you've received the knowledge of the truth, but you willfully act without compassion, without humility. If you just grab this verse out of context, 
Look what the conclusion is here. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But instead of that, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. My guess is some of you have heard preachers, pastor teachers, take this verse or a verse like it and make everybody in the room convinced there is no hope for them. But notice how verse 26 begins. It begins with the word for. For. He is explaining. He's giving rationale. He's giving a cause for the things he has just said. And it is so crucial to understand context for any verse. I mean, those of you who are with us on Fridays, Fridays with the Fellas, we're talking manhood and we're going through Proverbs. Proverbs, by definition, <laughs> are short aphorisms that uh, are just kind of one-offs, okay? So for the most part, you can interpret Proverbs without context. But that's just about the only book of the Bible that you can do that with, okay? So we got to go back and see what came before the four. And we're going to go back here to verse 19, which begins with therefore. And I really should go back further because therefore is drawing a conclusion of what has just been said. But I'm going to trust that you've been with us. <laughs> or you can go back and watch those, those live streams or listen to the podcast. But here's the context. Therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We have that confidence. By a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Jesus gave his body, his flesh, his life to give us this way to enter in. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, we have that. Jesus is that high priest. Since those things are true, let us draw near. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the what? The confession of our hope. You have hope in what Christ has done. Hold fast and don't waver in your devotion, your trust, your clinging to the death of Jesus as your hope. Why? For he who promises faithful. God is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We talked about all this yesterday not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near for, he hasn't started a new context. He's not making an abstract, isolated statement here. For, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What's the context? If you let go of your hope in the finished work of Christ, you know what Christ came to do. You understand he is that sacrifice. He is that high priest. It's his blood that brings cleansing. We have confidence to enter the presence of God because of Jesus. If we have the knowledge of that truth and then we willingly 
turn from it. There's no longer a sacrifice for sins. So he says, we go on sinning. What sin is he concerned about? Unbelief. Letting go of that hope of Christ and his sacrifice. If we know that, we turn away from it. There's no longer a sacrifice for sins. Where, where are you going to go to find forgiveness? Atonement. Access to God. If you walk away from the work of Christ, there's nowhere to go. There's no sacrifice. He's already said the blood of bulls and goats won't achieve those things. Where are you going to go? So you see the point. The sin, I've told you this all the way through, the sin the writer of Hebrews is concerned about is the sin of unbelief. And we've seen that again and again. It's not impatience with your kids. It's not saying the harsh things to your wife. It's not failing to show compassion and humility and those kind of things. Those are sins and we need to repent from them. We need to overcome them for sure. But the sin of Hebrews is unbelief, letting go of your commitment to Christ, your hope in Christ. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? And again, he's talking to Jewish converts here. So he quotes from the Old Testament some things that they would know. There's no sacrifice for sins. Instead of that, there is the terrifying expectation of judgment. And, and then he quotes from Isaiah here, the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> I was going to say inflammatory language. That'd be a terrible pun. This is, this is, uh, think about a fire. An out of, out of control fire, at least the way we see it, which consumes that. That's what he's quoting. So let's take a look at this in its context. So in, uh, in Isaiah 26, and I'm so tempted, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to stay the course here, but Ah, if you were with us in the Isaiah study, this whole oracle is long and is talking about the fall of Jerusalem and uh, there's just so much here, but I'm going to, I'm going to reframe. I do find it interesting that chapter 26 begins with this phrase in that day, in that day, this song will be sung. Those of you who've been with us, can you, uh, can you discern why this statement in that day, this song will be sung is interesting to me in light of Hebrews. Let me see if any of you pick up on that while I go on here in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And here's the lyrics of the song. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous may enter the one that remains faithful. See that? The righteous may enter the gates. Who is that righteous one? The one that remains faithful. Yeah, Rob's on it. The day approaching. I just wonder. I brought up, what was it yesterday? That uh, when it says all, and uh, uh, stimulate one another to love and good deeds and all the more so as you see the day approaching. And we see these phrases in Isaiah about that day and a quote from this context. Makes me wonder, but I'm not going to go back there right now. All right, so the one who remains faithful is that righteous one. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. You see this repeated 
explanation of the one who trusts, who is faithful, the steadfast. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, for God the Lord, we have an, an everlasting rock. Same kind of thing as in Hebrews. You trust, you trust, you trust. For he has brought low those who dwell on high, the unassailable city, which in the Hebrews study we saw was Jerusalem. He lays it low. He lays it to the ground. He casts it to the dust. So Jerusalem's going to fall. The foot will trample it. The feet of the afflicted, the steps of the helpless. The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. And who is the righteous one in this whole context? The one who trusts the Lord. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. At night, my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the world, sorry, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness. He does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see it. They see your zeal for the people and are put to shame. Indeed, your, uh, indeed fire will devour your enemies. So this repeated refrain of trust in the Lord and God consuming his enemies, the writer of Hebrews quotes that and says, if you go on sinning willfully, if you let go of Christ and his finished work, you have no sacrifice for your sins. And the only thing waiting you is this expectation of judgment and God's all-consuming fire. Do you see how very different the context makes our interpretation? of this verse, it's not just a generic statement about willful sin. It's the sin of unbelief. And not, it's important to clarify this because I get asked this occasionally. It's not the sin of unbelief, meaning your neighbor who doesn't claim to believe in Jesus or your friend or your family member who says, no, I don't believe, I'm not a Christian. That's not the unbelief that's concerned here. That sin can be repented of. But as the writer of Hebrews has said repeatedly, the one who has full knowledge of what Jesus has come to do and believes it and then lets go of it, what's left for that person? And now again, since he's got a Jewish audience, a former Jewish audience, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. It's all over the law, right? If you are charged with something and there are two witnesses in the law of Moses, you're executed. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who is trampled underfoot the Son of God? Do you see the point? He's saying to these former Jews, you know the severity of breaking the old covenant law. You know that severity. 
you, you understand how the law of Moses worked. Two or three witnesses, and that's all you need. But something better than Moses has come. Jesus, his shed blood. And God takes it far more offensively when you disregard the sacrifice of his son than he does breaking the law of Moses. Hey, Arch Deluxe, um, is, I'm just wondering, is this what you think your role here is, is just to continue to um, correct everything? Do, uh, how about you start a live stream and I'll come check it out? Okay, I'm not sure what you're trying to do here other than prove your great learning, but I'm not sure why, what help you're trying to, uh, to bring here. So could I ask you please to just stop with constantly pointing out all the stuff that you know? Okay, thanks. So how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God he has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. That's how God receives it when we have full knowledge of what Christ came to do and then we walk away. You've regarded his blood, the blood of Jesus, God's son, as unclean. This blood of the covenant this new covenant for which Jesus is the mediator. If you walk away, he regards that as unclean. He, he says, you've insulted the spirit of grace. This is a big deal to God. There is no bigger deal to God. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And now he's quoting from Deuteronomy 32, where God says, look, this is what I've done. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. God found him in a desert land, in the howling waste of wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as a pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him. There was no foreign God with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth. All these things God did for Israel when Israel didn't deserve anything but God's wrath. He ate the produce of the field and made him uh, suck from the honey of the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds of cows and milk of the flock, fat of the lambs, rams, finest wheat, all these wonderful things God gave him. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. 
for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. They've made me jealous with what is not God. They provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation, for a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol and consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap misfortunes on them. I will use my arrows on them. They will be wasted by famine, consumed by plague, bitter destruction, the teeth of beasts I will send on them, the venom of crawling things, of the dust, and so on. And the writer of Hebrews quotes from that passage and says, we know this God, we former Jews, we know this God, that when you provoke him, He will judge his people and is a terrifying thing when he pours out his wrath. And there's no greater wrath, no no greater provocation to wrath to God than understanding what Jesus did, his sacrifice shedding his blood, his innocent blood, a a lamb without spot or blemish. There was no sin in Jesus. There was no reason for him to die. He had not disobeyed God a single time. And to know that and understand that and believe that and confess that and then to turn away from that. To say, no, I'm not going to hold fast to the sacrifice of Jesus. God says, I will repay. And you're insulting the spirit of grace and you're trampling under your feet the blood of my son. I don't think there's a bigger offense to God in the scripture. That's the sin the writer of Hebrews is talking about. That's what he's concerned about. It doesn't mean other sins are unimportant to God. That's not the point. We should repent of all of them and stop doing them. But there is a context. There's a a message here of Hebrews that matters. Tim says, the day approaching and fire reference reminds me of things I've been reading in Malachi 4. The day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. Yeah, there's a lot of those statements. That question always comes, what, which, which day? <laughs> Some of those are obviously uh, the day of uh, the fall of Jerusalem. Um, so those are, those are very interesting. Yeah, good correlation. All right, folks, our time is up. I hope you have two things today. Tip number one, you let this be a, an important uh, interpretive lesson to always take things in their context because we get in lots of trouble. And we distort God's word when we rip things out of context. Uh, secondly, hang on to Jesus. No matter what comes, persecution, opposition, hold fast your confession and be around other Christians who will hold you fast to Christ and what he's accomplished. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing.